Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, thank you so much, Solar Warriors, for joining another Suncast episode, for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. I promise that you are not wasting or investing it poorly today, you're going to gain so much more insight on a number of topics, namely growing uh, a startup and imbuing it with the kind of cultural heritage that one can be proud of as a founder and as a CEO. If you're new to the show, I just want to thank you for giving us an opportunity to earn your attention. If you stay all the way through to the end, uh, well, I can't thank you any, any more than to give you my gratitude. And I'd love you to reach out to me and let me know why you stuck around to the end of the episode and how I can keep making these wonderful insights into leaders in the clean tech industry for you. Today's entrepreneur is a friend of the show. In fact, her original episode was episode 148. But if you are new to Suncast, uh, I would encourage you to cue that episode up. You can listen in today to Ms. Catherine Von Berg as we dive into the most recent accolades enjoyed by she and her team at Simplify Power. Not sure who Simplify Power is? Well, definitely stick around because you'll hear not only the some of the founding story, also covered in episode 148, but the maturity of that company and ultimate exit recently to a little known company here in America called Briggs & Stratton. Maybe you've heard of it. That story and more is coming at you. We're going to talk also about Catherine's career that spans a diverse portfolio with decades of strategic planning, policy development, executive management experience. Organizations like Pew Charitable Trust, Rockefeller Institute, Columbia, and Johns Hopkins schools, and how this biomedical engineer found herself running a power electronics company in Ojai, California. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show. That's how you'll not miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out the more than 470 additional founder stories and startup advice, including episode 148 at mysuncast.com or wherever you queue up podcasts in your podcast player of choice, including Spotify. For now, I want you to get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Catherine, I am so excited to have you back on the show. I just want to start out by saying welcome back to Suncast and congratulations on the many recent successes of Simplify Power. Well, thank you. As you know, I'm always looking for an interesting definition of success or personal. And also just to say, I love your show because, as I've said, it's about the stories that all of us have. And there's no one way to do anything. And hearing people's stories, it gives a, a view into how they did it and possible lessons learned. I really genuinely appreciate that. And I appreciate you because every time I talk to you, I remember it, it really does ground me with a sense of humanity about the work that we're doing. Uh, there's so much that we could talk about in this conversation of people chasing dreams and what are those dreams and how to define success <laughs> 
you know, you've had an, you have an amazing story. I mentioned a couple of times in the intro, I do want people to queue up episode 148. It was for me, one that I fondly remember. I remember being to the point of tears. I remember just thinking what an inspirational leader you must be to work for. Uh, I'm not saying any of that because I'm trying to garner your favor. I'm glad to already, (laughs) I'm glad to already have it, but I do want others to recognize the wonderful leader that you are. Uh, It has it has a lot of undertone of, of struggle and perseverance. And we're going to get into that grit today. Mm. You and I have discussed sort of the nature of work and even what is the definition of corporate life, so to speak. I remember that you <laughs> got your, you got your early start, multiple jobs, as I recall in high school, but uh, one of those being on wall street. Tell me, tell me the story of uh, that early sort of introduction to corporate world. Yeah, it was a matter of survival, actually. So um, my parents divorced. I had four stepmothers every year. Schools, continents, houses, stepmothers changed. There was this constant change in my life growing up. And ending up back in New York City after leaving London to finish out high school. And because of home life being chaotic and other issues, I left home. And so I had to figure out, well, how I was going to support myself. I began bartending, waiting tables at Tuesday's Jazz Club. And then I got a job on 14 Wall Street, right across from the Stock Exchange or Kitty Corner. And that that was an eye-opener for me, being introduced to the financial world. I was in the back room very often plotting uh, performance of companies on graphs that would help the executive team make investment decisions. So a lot of contrast in high school um, between waiting tables and bartending, (laughs) lying about my age. It was pre-computer era. So um, yeah, it gives me a real idea of what people have to survive all over the world and to make it and get by. Yeah. And to not take it for granted either, right? There's a lot of folks who talk about how hard it is to find talent. And while that's true, I feel like a lot of folks just sort of wait for talent to come to them. And I think that you've built the kind of business that, that goes out and finds what you need. And talent is a part of that. We'll get into in a bit, uh, just your specific approach as a leader to attracting and retaining talent. I want to get into too many details on that just yet. Mm -hmm. Knowing sort of the backstory of of your career story, which we've talked about at length in our prior conversation. One of the things that stands out to me that I think serves as a, a feature, not a bug in the overall narrative or lack thereof is something I want to probe a little deeper. What's not on your LinkedIn profile, but that nonetheless features prominently in the formation of your leadership style? Well, probably What's not on LinkedIn and uh, nor on my resume is time that I took when I became pregnant with my son. And I was 34, really aggressively going after what I cared about in my career in New York City. And when I became pregnant, the plan with my ex-husband, now ex-husband, was to get the baby nanny and go right back to work. Everything I do, I can't help but be passionate about And so um, being a professional, again, since high school, 
that was the vision. But when I became pregnant and realized I was expected to hand over this young, this new being to a stranger, um, I couldn't do it. So what's not on my resume or LinkedIn is that I walked away from my career. And then my daughter was born a little over a year later, and then I became a single mother uh, by the time they were two and three, and took a solid six years away from my career. Now I say that, but the, the truth is I began to volunteer in schools. My ex-husband and I had left New York City, come to California because of his job with Patagonia, and we split. So I started volunteering in the schools when my children started preschool and wanted to give back. And then I found I loved being in the classroom. And then I was hired by the school system, public school system in Ohio as a speech pathologist, which meant really I started working with what were seen as the toughest kids, kids on the autism spectrum, kids that had auditory or learning, and I'm using air quotes, disabilities. For me, it was amazing because these children I didn't see as having disabilities, they had different learning styles. And it was up to me, the teacher, not to ask them to fit in to a curriculum and these prescribed ideas of how they should learn. It was up to me to figure out how to reach them. It created an opportunity for me to think about different ways of assimilating information and having experiences that were more tactile or visceral than necessarily cerebral or every everything in between. So that is not on my resume. And it's too bad. And I think a lot of women, women listening, but men too who take time out, it is something I always look for on resumes and encourage people, men and women, to include because I feel that I'm a better CEO because of becoming a mother. Now, that's not to say you cannot be a successful CEO without becoming a parent, but for me, becoming a mother, I found resources and reserves and tenacity and commitment in myself that I might not otherwise have experienced in the way that I did because of having children and certainly being a single mother. These are the moments that I can't script. They give me goosebumps. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was, uh, yeah, that's powerful. I hope that thousands of people are downloading this episode and listening to you. Well, I appreciate that you asked the question. And for me, what I so often find is that people don't talk about some of the darkest and toughest times. There was a time when I was a teenager leaving school and not knowing if I had college in me. Um, for a lot of reasons. And I don't talk about these issues. People don't talk about these issues. And yet it is the dark times and, and the struggles that really not just make us stronger, but a lot of beauty can come out of them. And I don't mean to sound trite because I also know people who have abuse in their backgrounds and neglect and similar circumstances that I grew up with and they didn't make it. And when I say make it, I don't mean in a corporate or financial sense. They wiped out. And I have to say, in order to be honest, that there are times in my life where I have always been worried about wiping out. I still worry about wiping out. <laughs> Nothing can be taken for granted. And so much of what we have is by circumstance, as well as our own grit and fortitude. 
And I'm always grateful for both. I've cultivated a lot of relationships, friendships, really through this process. I've always, I've always had friends in the workplace and, and colleagues and friends in the industry, but through the platform of being able to have these types of conversations, I've really formed some deep uh, friendships with strong female leaders in our industry. I mean, just so many. This, this story that you are, you're being vulnerable enough to tell. So many want to, they embrace, right? We know, um, we know all the things that you and I are going to talk about today. We know that they're true for many, many, um, I'll say like marginalized folks in any industry, um, female and male, um, of, of all skin color. Uh, I just want to acknowledge and thank you for, for the way that you show up and the way that you do, uh, encourage others to explore and find the beauty in the things that others might consider weakness or, uh, or worthy of erasing from your history. I ask folks all the time in actual interviews for work, and I encourage my clients to do the same. You know, what is it that you, uh, for brevity or space, usually eliminate from your, ba- your past story that, that actually was formative about your life? Well, and especially I find people look at me, I'm six foot one, I'm blonde, I'm white. I, and it turns out I'm pretty well educated. Yeah. And I have European backgrounds with kind of an international worldview and sensibility. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of assumptions that are projected onto me. And especially with Columbia University and the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School, Ivy League, and then my physical presence, I think people make a lot of assumptions. And I think those assumptions are dangerous because on the flip side, the assumptions that people make about you, I felt in very different ways when things were pretty tough in my life. Growing up in inner city, uh, Detroit Pontiac, the flip side is going to public school or private school, living in Pontiac and being viewed as white trash. The shame of poverty, the shame of not having enough food to eat, the shame of being grubby because you don't have a parent at home who's taking care of you. So I have felt the projections of what people think I am because of my Ivy League schooling, again, my physical appearance, which you know, I can't do anything about, I was, but, but I've also felt that underbelly of people's projections of, again, white trash, dirty, grubby, poverty stricken child who's clueless and fearful, not confident. And I've seen how teachers in schools project these ideas onto me, onto students, lowered expectations. And over the years, as I've grown up, I mean, I'm 60 years old, I have struggled to not internalize what people project onto me, what their story of me is, because it can be really detrimental. It can undermine my own worldview and to keep on track of what's important. Thank you for that. I've struggled my entire career, my entire life with internalizing other people's assumptions. You know, it's funny when we did meet the juxtaposition of those around us would have no doubt stood out that you're six one and I'm five four. Um, <laughs> and so as a five four person with the kind of personality that I have, which has always been the same, I am more comfortable 
on a stage with a microphone taking front and center, it brings with it a lot of, a lot of assumptions around ego, a lot of assumptions around um, self-centeredness and also kind of that small man complex of like me needing to make myself look bigger. I hear you on that. Don't internalize what other people think and project about you. You know, a lot of people would Mm -hmm. think that I never struggle with self-confidence yet. It's probably the thing that I struggled most with. Interesting. Yeah. And I've being, being so big, I've tried to make myself smaller in very real ways, especially as a young girl, being this tall at 11 or 12, it was a disaster. Growing up sports was what really saved me. And what we're talking about it, I don't think it matters what body type, what career, what background, we all struggle with these issues. We don't talk about it. That's right. Yeah, that's so true. How often do you find, and this is where that one of those gray areas as a, as a corporate leader, how often do you find that this is something that is too often overlooked in, in your, in your company? And how do you approach that? I'm actually curious, the question I had here, and I'm not sure exactly if it's the right segue, but it does tie to it is if you think about the work that you did with marginalized students or, you know, kids who are labeled with disabilities, who, who, who had to deal and, and with the internalization of other people's thoughts and projections about them. How do you translate that experience into your role as the leader of a company where you've got all types of people coming from all economic backgrounds trying to focus on, we'll call it a common goal? I think for me, in my experience, founding a company that set out from the start that we're on a mission and it allows people to envision this mission for themselves, regardless of their educational background, skill set. They are captivated with the mission mission they want to join the company. Then it becomes a matter of being open to the idea. And I always have, perhaps because of my background and what I've shared with you, and that is people interviewing, I would always say, I am more interested in the kind of person you are than any particular skill set. Because if you have what we call around here the give a shit factor. Ah, um, wow. If, yeah, if you have the give a shit factor and you have a lot of, you're, you have a lot of drive, you're smart, you're quick, you're easy, you're able to adapt easily. All these traits that I think are typically thought of as emotional intelligence, but no one looks for in resumes. Mm. So from day one, I'm interested in the person you are. Tell me your story. And I've had to backtrack on that, especially <laughs> even, even now, especially in the early days, though, because think about it. We founded in this small town up in the mountains in Ojai, California. Where, where is the, that for those who don't know? Because uh, most people get completely get it wrong. So it is, if you're thinking about Santa Barbara, it's about an hour south. But again, in the high desert mountains, if you are thinking about Los Angeles, it's about an hour and 40 minutes north. Yeah. Small town. Uh, and so the, the quote unquote labor pool is very limited. And so looking at kids who are coming out of high school and really not having much opportunity. And what I was always able to say is we will train the hard skills. It's more about who you are. And then also in the early days of the company, because startup, very small amount of money, initial 800,000, 
to get us going, looking at creative ways to hire people who were looking for jobs and working with the Ventura County Workforce Program through the Economic Development Center. They had an amazing program of people who had been homeless and living on the street or just some challenging stories. And if we hired them after they had gone through the training, created a six-month training program, the county paid for half their salary. That allowed us to hire two-for-one, essentially, get people in who had the give-a-shit factor. They cared. They were very interested in creating something of value for themselves. Uh, Again, the mission of the company was very compelling. And then there were times, too, where even the interview itself became an opportunity to begin mentoring right away. For example, people would come in and I would want to hear their story. And then sometimes I would have to tell them, please know other CEOs or other managers who will be hiring you or interviewing will not want to know this information. So let me help you think about how to articulate it and present it in a way where you have your truth, but you're also speaking to the value and the lessons learned and and why this makes you strong stronger. I used to ask people to tell me some of your gifts that you bring to the world. And they start talking about hard skill sets. And it's been very challenging sometimes to get people to understand they just have natural aptitudes and gifts that they bring that make them such an amazing person to work with, collaborate with, to innovate with. And they have to be taught that very often. Yeah. There's so much that comes from being in a nurturing environment too, you know? Yeah. It's funny you use the word nurturing because I wouldn't have used that word to capture what I had just been describing, but I suppose it is. Mm -hmm. And it's every bit of what I did not grow up with, what I did not experience in the workplace. Much of what I do is by learning in my mind what not to do. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because a few years ago, uh, if someone had asked me, you know, about my career path, it very much incorporated a, a narrative of the many failures that, that, that demonstrated and ingrained in me what I call my second, third, and fourth MBA, where by and large, I learned what not to do. And I think a lot of us are afraid to fail, so we don't change. We don't take risks. And I, to almost to a person, every entrepreneur I've ever met who has been through multiple corporate failures, mm. I've never met anyone who said they would do it differently, who said, I would rather have that time back. I'm, I regret having gone through that experience because the one that we see that they had that succeeded, in effect, succeeded because they learned what not to do on somebody else's dime most often, or at times on the dime of, you know, uh, investors who ultimately said, you know, this was market forces or what have you, and we believe in you, and we've seen how you've grown through these hard times and these failures. And we come back around to this conversation of the, the, the purifying crucible that is, you know, the stressful situations and failures that our life can put us in. I want to mention a resource here that I don't know if you've ever read this book, but a lot of folks have read Pat Lencioni, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. There's a beautiful companion book to that book where he mentions the five dysfunctions because he gets into a scenario where a lot of folks having listened to or read, read five dysfunctions, come back to his company, the table group and say, how do I hire the right people so that I don't have all Mm -hmm. these dysfunctional teams? 
So he wrote a book that I recommend often to my clients called Ideal Team Player. And uh, I would recommend that anybody listen to that. Of course, we link to any resources like this in the show notes for our episodes. So uh, I'm happy, I'll happily send you a link to that book as well if you haven't read it. But The Ideal Team Player by Pat Lencioni for me serves as one of those, if you truly do want to build a team player culture, Mm -hmm. Uh, And he looks for three really simple things. And they're simple, not easy, as I said in our pre-interview on on another topic that, uh, and that is, you'll listen to the book, know what this means specifically, but he looks for people that are hungry, humble, and smart. Hmm. And smart is is one of those non-evident ones. It's not IQ. So I encourage folks to go listen to that one. I love these interviews that get me emotionally involved. And I'm like on the verge of tears. Like I was crying thinking about my wife taking (laughs) a decade out of the workforce. Yeah. And how much better, not only I am, my kids and my business for it, but whatever she leans into as a consequence. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, the humans that she's created and, and invested in are the better for it and the world for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something we don't talk enough, certainly in the, in the business world, yeah. what we think of as maternity or paternity leave. And going through that for the first time as a company and charting our own path. Yeah. Deciding that we are going to pay employees more than is mandated. Uh, mm. It was a surprise to me that the big deal is just to allow people time off. Yeah. I thought by definition, companies had to pay them too. Right. No. Wow. No, you don't. That's right. No, you just have no. to, you just have to not give their seat away. Right. And some, some states provide a percentage of whatever their salary was, but we have employees all over the U.S. and some states don't provide anything. Mm. So for me, making a decision as a company, no, we're going to pay these people. We're going to give them the three months off or whatever they need. Wow. And we're going to do a soft start part-time when they come back, if that's what they want. They'll keep their benefits and we're not doing it the way the state mandates or what is quote-unquote best practices in the industry because it matters. And what we're talking about is, is supporting families and children and what you just said and what I spoke to earlier, I am fundamentally a better person and a more effective CEO because of my children, the lessons I learned along the way, not, not what they learned from me. (laughs) So unfortunately I don't think enough people are open to that. Hey, solar project owners and developers, are infrequent field checks in your operations and maintenance plan and oversight? Do you need proper insight? Well, let data drive your maintenance. Our friends over at 60 Hertz are in the cloud so that you spend less time on the ground and their app is a snap. 60 Hertz in your pocket will help bring solar to the socket. You can learn more about how 60 Hertz can help your operations and maintenance plan at mysuncast.com forward slash 60HERTZ. That's 60 Hertz. The solar industry is at a critical moment. Trade disputes, supply chain constraints, and interconnection delays threaten the momentum of the clean energy transition's golden technology. Hey, Suncast listeners, I'm John Engel, host of a new podcast for the solar industry called Factor This. Each episode, we're taking you in-depth on the issues that matter to you most, and we've launched with a four-part series on the Oxen Solar Tariff Petition, which includes an exclusive interview with their CEO. Nico was one of our first listeners, and I hope you'll join him. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you at Factor This. 
Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, you mentioned being in Ojai, uh, having an 800K seed money um, sort of pot to, to start the company. Many would look at Simplify and say, this is not the kind of company that's going to succeed on a number of levels. A uh, tiny company doing clean tech hardware in nowhere in middle California with less than a million dollars in funding. How in the world are they going to compete with a Tesla Powerwall? Speak to those skeptics about the growth numbers you experienced over the last decade that ultimately did lead a trajectory of a company that has many dozens of employees distributed around the world with, you know, tier one uh, revenue grade clients and a very remarkable and respectable exit to a company like Briggs and Stratton. Let's, let's kind of dissect that a bit and take me back to the early days, 800K in the bank. How did you grow this thing to the company that Briggs and Stratton and others vied to, to acquire? I do think looking back, although in the moment in 2010, it was not as if I had an awareness if, if I help to found a company that has purpose, that's on a mission, that somehow it would translate into a stronger bottom line. Right. It was just part of my nature, who I am. If you look at all the data, of course, available in the industry, companies that do have an integrated bottom line, people plan at profit, they have a stronger balance sheet. They grow at faster rates and all the data is there. So one might ask if the data is there, why aren't more companies executing on a triple bottom line? Why aren't they executing on profit with purpose or a strong mission? That's another point that I find interesting. There's so much data out there to drive sound decision-making that is not utilized. So going back to starting the company, because we were so mission-based, I looked at energy storage as a way to solve problems, uh, eradicate poverty, to solve some of the problems around communities that were marginalized simply because they didn't have access to energy. In 2010, there were 1.2 billion people that lived without power. And by virtue of that, they didn't have access to other resources, including education and medical care, but also clean water, et cetera. So for me, founding a company, leveraging energy storage was about solving issues. Now, the truth is, and you mentioned Tesla earlier, which is fine. If you think about it, Tesla introduced the Powerwall in April 2015. So we started really delivering on this vision and the technology in 2010. Another critical decision we made that many in the VC world, as they came to find out about us and get to know us and want to invest, was that we turned away from cobalt. And while cobalt is cheaper, 
it is riddled with child labor and problems in the supply chain having to do with that. It's also highly toxic and hazardous and dangerous. And for me, going back to the early days, thinking about energy storage, solving problems, why am I going to build a technology, innovate around a chemistry that fundamentally is hazardous? And why not use something even though it's more expensive? And again, the the market, it's always competitive. It was a really tough decision to go with something that was more expensive that wouldn't just give us a cost advantage. But again, going back to the mission, how did we grow? I kept coming back to the mission and our purpose and made, made a decision and put a stake in the ground. Fast forward to 2021, 2022. It's like a gold rush. Everybody, you know, 2019, everybody started coming into the LFP, the lithium ferrophosphate, which is fine because then more people are paying attention to supply chains and creating solutions that don't fundamentally put the customer at risk. So going back to the beginnings, because of being mission-based, it forced us to look in areas that were probably less traditional, but to be laser-focused on the customer. What were the pain points? If we didn't have massive amounts or even a small amount, a 10 million round coming in from VCs, it required that we were laser focused on markets or customers, right? What people needed. And we were also laser focused on the economics. Where will energy storage plus solar plus wind plus even generators being built in, grid tied, off grid, where will it pencil out? And where does it make sense financially? And that's how we began to build. And the P Department of Defense that at the time had uh, banned all lithium-ion chemistry uh, because of cobalt, because batteries were exploding on forward operating bases in Afghanistan and Iraq, they came to us and never thought that, I never thought we would work with the military. But when I began to understand the numbers, again, here, a business case, landed cost could be as much as $800 a gallon for fuel on a forward operating base in Afghanistan. In addition, lives lost because of protecting convoys um, and constraints with generators. You have a bullseye, noise, pollution, heat. So we began to innovate batteries for the Department of Defense. And through that work, we began to work with um, other government agencies, humanitarian organizations, and through receiving purchase orders Purchase orders after the Department of Defense had tested our equipment and our batteries and the interoperability between our batteries and inverters and their generators and the solar, we began building microgrids that were on trailers that could be pulled behind Humvees. We were able to establish all this credibility because of tests before we could afford the UL certs or the uh, Intertech certifications. So for me, going back to the mission, we selected the customers, we chose the projects, we were laser focused on the solutions, the financial modeling, how it penciled out, and then also thinking about, okay, how can we creatively have rigorous testing that sends a message to the market about how effective our, and how safe and how our technology performs, 
and partnering with the Department of Defense. Since then, fast forward, we have 9548, 9540, all the top certifications, of course. But in the early days, you know, it just required me, us to be very nimble and come up with creative ways and using our partners to help us prove out and establish our footprint in the market. How did you overcome the implicit inertia of early startup hardware-focused tech company that would generally lead you to Sand Hill Road and VC Capital to ease the pain of the necessity for <laughs> testing and and fat manufacturing and staff? You know, a lot of it is scrappy, just sheer scrappiness and tenacity. I'm not kidding. We did our own testing in the back parking lot when, mm. you know, OSHA didn't know about us. We could do all sorts of things, set fire, <laughs> blow up, crush, drop. That's awesome. We tested and selected and and really went through iterations in the build of our energy storage systems. With regard to VCs specifically, there were lots of pressures to take on money and certainly Sand Hill Road and when VCs started to find out about the company were approaching us. But there were some fundamental problems, at least for me, the way I think one of the first questions was, what's your exit strategy? Well, we've talked about kids and we've talked about commitment and, and tough pursuits that require long-term vision. And I could not imagine an exit strategy. I didn't get in this to make a hockey stick return, get out. I was in this to really build something of value that would last. And that meant slower growth. I'm not saying what we did the way I did it, the decisions I made was the right way, but it's the way I wanted to build a company. So the exit strategy posed a problem. I was also told by VCs, you have too many products, you're in too many markets, and that really means you are just not focused, you are bound to fail, and of course, I would love to say I did not internalize these messages. It, it was very worrisome. But quite honestly, if we hadn't diversified our market because of some of the regulatory issues in the early days, thinking residential was going to be the big opportunity and then finding out how utilities were and still are fighting against distributed uh, energy storage, rooftop solar, all the rest of it, we would have been in trouble. The fact that I diversified across markets and applications was our saving grace. It was quite the opposite of what the VCs were saying. So that was the second thing, exit strategy or too diverse. And then the third really challenging issue for me was I should step down as a female CEO and put a male in my place. And I kid you not, that is not just once that I heard from one firm um, and even law, big law firms that were working with VCs in a lot of investments and acquisitions, et cetera. And I struggled quite a bit. I went through quite a dark period because going, again, back to the mission of the company, integrated bottom line, if I am really on a mission to make a difference, make an impact in this world, address people, populations that are marginalized across the globe simply because they don't have access to energy, then why wouldn't I step aside? If a male can do it better, and I always wrestle with that, you know, 
Who can do it? Of course someone can do it better. You want to put it in terms of gender? Fine. I never assume and I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want to hear uh, different perspectives. But how do you listen to different perspectives and worldviews without it shaking or undermining your own? And I think it's a constant tension. So I felt that maybe it would be best for the technology, for the mission of the company, if I stepped aside. Because when women try and raise money, they raise it, they're able to raise it less often. And when they raise it, it is less money. And it seemed like the right decision. And then, quite honestly, there are certain things I know about myself. One is I am unrelenting and in my vision, in my commitment. And that means working 24-7 and doing what it takes. It means I will be in the back parking lot blowing up batteries and testing things. And I will be in front of customers at trade shows and pumps and pearls. And I will do everything in between to make this happen. So that is the story behind me and VCs. <laughs> I want to probe a little deeper on something that you said, uh, not surprisingly for those who listened to the first uh, half of this interview. The VCs asking you to resign uh, brings up a number of things for me to think about, not the least of which is, you know, there's a couple of sort of statistics. One, on the one side, female CEOs raise money less, less often and they raise less money. Mm. On the other side, uh, there's data that I'm sure you can point to about the comparison of female versus male leadership of, uh, of companies with CEOs and of, of both genders. Can you talk about the, the way that you both internalized and then didn't internalize that, the, that reality that, that it's true. Females uh, historically have raised less money and they've raised less often. And that implicitly is going to, or per, the perception therefore is gonna, is gonna limit your ability to grow. It's gonna limit your ability to scale the company. Yeah. And to me, what would limit our ability to scale and grow had much more to do with anything mm -hmm. about VCs and taking on money. Acquion was an example in the early days. And, and I never like to take on companies or disparage, and it's not about that. But there are a lot of companies that have failed since 2010, since we founded. And every time a company, a competitor, went out of business, for me, it was a cautionary tale. It was not a day to celebrate. It was, we better pay attention to this. By the time Acquion had founded and gone bankrupt, they had raised approximately $190 million in debt and equity. From notable investors like Bill Gates. Yes, exactly. So what happened there? Well, their technology had enormous problems in the field. I can say that because we were in microgrids where our energy storage was uh, in a microgrid along with theirs. First-hand experience with that. So it is true that female CEOs raise less money and less often, but I do think female CEOs have a different way of approaching challenges. But again, I never like to, to say anything is the right way or the wrong way. And what I constantly go back to is this issue of diversity. And right now, and in 2010, everybody's talking about diversity from a sort of a political or a moral stance, and it is. But if you just look at it as a business issue, companies that are more diverse 
from their executive team to the boards to their managers on down. Companies that are more diverse, male, female, black, brown, international, domestic, they are more successful and they have stronger bottom lines. The data is out there and it proves it over and over again. And for us as a startup in 2010, that was another thing we've been able to prove out. We, in the early days, kind of had this ragtag team by Silicon Valley standards. We didn't have Stanford, Harvard, or grads. And we put people to work and trained and really built our manufacturing and R&D team from the ground up. So if diversity makes a big difference to the bottom line of a company, well, I do think it's a serious problem in this country and a moral issue and an ethical issue, definitely. Why aren't more people being included that have different color skin, different ethnic backgrounds? It is amazing to me that that doesn't happen more often because I have seen the magic in this company. When people come together with different worldviews, different experiences, where they grew up, it is incredible, the synergy, the ideas that come. And just again, going back to what you do, Nico, telling people's stories, for people to hear each other's stories and work side by side, creating solutions, working through problems, it's, it's pretty magical. And I'm not saying it's all, you know, roses, meaning of course conflict comes up. And, and of, course, of course you have to work through uh, that conflict. Um, but I've seen it over and over again. People can connect and it is magic. I don't understand if you go back to the data, why more companies aren't hiring from their boards on down, more diverse teams. It makes them better and stronger and gives them a longer life. One of the points too male CEO, female CEO, I I do think a real problem in this country, and it would certainly help address diversity, diverse teams, is CEO pay levels. And so another issue for me in the early days that is really not common practice and is frowned upon by VCs and investors is CEOs giving up their pay for employees through rough times. And we saw this in COVID, right? In terms of, do you lay employees off? Or if you look at the 10 million, 20 million that the CEO is making, and there are some CEOs of of newer, earlier stage companies that have made decisions to take a pay cut so that their entire workforce gets a higher pay rate. The reason I talk about CEO pay is that it's so important when we think about the income disparity in this country and that companies have, in my mind, an obligation to address income disparity. When you look in the U.S., CEOs 200, 400, 600 times what the mean employee makes, I think it's a problem. And when I look at our manufacturing plant, And I see all these young men and women of so many diverse backgrounds. They come together every day and they're in the factory. They are building the product that is solving the solutions out in the world that is what we're all about. The product they build allows us to execute on our mission and have an impact on people's lives around the world. Why would we pay them minimum wage? Why would we pay them obscenely low 
wages and pay me or executive teams, it's obscenely high. So that's been a principle in this company. It also affects what we talk about in the energy industry. People confuse price with cost. You know, what is the price per kilowatt hour? What is the cost per kilowatt hour? We have U.S.-based manufacturing. We have been a company that has always been about manufacturing our batteries here in California. Manufacturing has been outsourced for years, and it really came to a head with COVID, and we can't even produce our own PPE. Companies have been allowed to siphon off manufacturing and job creation overseas to chase slave wages. So now we have a, a, an economy that's based on slave wages. American companies can't compete. Again, for us, Simplify Power, we're competing against companies that are white labeling stuff that's imported, that's sold at a cheaper rate. Does this matter to the consumer? Does it matter to overall economic strength for us as a company, for the uh, county that we're in, the business we bring? For every one manufacturing job, you create additional jobs, seven to 12 jobs, depending on the study, the territory, and the industry. It has a huge impact. So this issue of financial inequity is very important to me. It's how companies practice and actually pay the employees where value is being created and driven in the company. And then the issue of fair wages with regard to an international community and the question of cost versus price. If we think about cost for getting wages for a moment and you think about all the externalities with fossil fuels, gas and oil, and that these externalities, which are real hard costs in terms of environmental destruction, uh, which leads to destruction in industries like fishing, think about the Gulf, um, health fallout, big pharma, it's, it's very costly, but it's not factored into a kilowatt hour or a kilowatt or the gas uh, at the pump. And we need to start doing that differently and really think about factoring in true costs, what the consumer is paying, they may not be paying at the gas pump, but they are paying dearly on the back end through tax, tax loopholes and subsidies that are still booing the gas and oil industry. If you think about it, it would be so much more profitable for us as a company to go overseas, white label batteries from a Chinese company and have them brought in or a company somewhere in Southeast Asia. Why don't we do that? Because of the mission of the company. It is still alive and well today. Briggs purchasing us in 2021 and Briggs looking at Simplify Power as a company that can really help them chart a path into the future that's based on renewable energy, clean tech, and the synergies that have come about as a result of the acquisition from rapid prototyping, U.S.-based manufacturing, they share that with us. They build product in the U.S. There's a lot of value there. But why don't we look at our profit margin only and outsource? Again, to your question, from the founding of the company to 11, now 12 years later, through an acquisition that I will say was very lucrative for everybody in this company who struggled for years and stuck it out. And that's the other thing as a company, unlike Silicon Valley, every single person in this company had options. 
So when there was an equity event, everybody benefited, not just top management executives, mission of the company, and why we don't outsource and why we don't gain a competitive edge in cost because of the mission. We're not going to outsource. We're not going to do that, even though our competitors are. You're hitting on so many of the questions that uh, that I wanted to ask. So I'm glad that you are digging into them. You know, one of the things on the, everyone's mind who I'm sure gets a chance to have a conversation with you is uh, what drove that decision to select Briggs. Among the questions for me that I'll try to sequence here, because I love that you are, you, you get, you, you carry uh, these conversations and answer multiple questions in one answer. So I want to ask, what were the other alternatives what other considerations were present in the decision and how did you ultimately come to the decision to partner with Briggs? So in 2021, we had been growing since COVID 2019 into 20 and 21. It's important to say we did not go through an acquisition because we were in trouble or because we were struggling. We went through an acquisition with 40% growth rate from the previous year because really feeling like it was time to leverage the 11 years going on 12 years of what we had built. And again, going back to the mission of the company to continue to make an impact. And when we began to look at companies and companies had been coming to us, approaching us, there were companies that the size of Briggs, they were already in the renewable energy market. There were other private equity firms There were different types of deals and companies coming to us. Ultimately, the way we, the reason, several reasons we chose Briggs, the people, it always comes down to the people, doesn't it? (laughs) It was the people. It was that this hundred plus year old company had gone through some challenging times, come out on the other end to use that reference to the book, Ideal Team Players, Hungry, Humble, and Smart. They were hungry um, and a little bit humbled from difficult times, smart people, and looking to chart a future for Briggs and Stratton that was much more inclusive. And that includes looking beyond gas and oil and combustion engines and looking at everything in the energy industry. They have standby power division, right? Standby power And we build standby power all the time, grid-tied systems. We've been incorporating, going back to the early days with the Department of Defense, we've been optimizing and building in generators for years. They are part of off-grid renewable energy systems. So it makes sense to join forces, again, because they are global, but they believe in U.S. manufacturing and have state-of-the-art manufacturing plants we are already benefiting here. Since they acquired us, we acquired a second building, just a door down, and have now built out state-of-the-art test and validation and research and development uh, facility. Very exciting. So, <laughs> And so it's, it's continuing, continuing our mission to have an impact. And if we can have an impact and grow with Briggs & Stratton and help them chart a new course into renewable energy and energy storage, creating independence for people around how they interact with their own power generation and storage. That's a big win. Is there anything that that you find 
in particular relevant for that CEO out there who is also going through similar machinations, maybe similar growth that was maybe non-obvious for you. The learning points along that year of process, the the learning of, you know, what I understand to be more than six months of just due diligence. How can you help others perhaps short circuit some of the pain that they might otherwise experience? Mm, don't isolate. I'm, I'm terrible at times because when I am scared and I live in a state of fear most of my life, it doesn't stop me from doing anything, but <laughs> I have a tendency to isolate. I'm not a very good networker which is incongruous, really, because I love people. I love their stories. I like talking and interacting with people. But I'm not very good at asking for help. And I made the mistake early on of thinking I had to figure it out on my own. I will say I had one of the most transformative experiences for me, the unreasonable group. The whole experience is on our website, but it was a two-week immersion program, the Unreasonable Group, um, sponsored by uh, the U.S. State Department. They are aligned with the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals. And they found about, out about Simplify and Little Ojai and called up. I ignored their calls probably five times and all the emails. Finally, they, they convinced me that they were real and that they had a two-week immersion program for uh, 16 companies from all over the world, startup entrepreneurs who just come together for two weeks, which seemed an impossible amount of time for me to take away from the company. Just even ridiculous to ask that. But they pay for everything, fly us in, put us, uh, in our case, outside of Washington, D.C., and over the course of two weeks, bring in experts from all over the world, including governments, finance, marketing, and we get to sit around and be educated and educate each other and tell our god-awful, ugly stories. And it was that experience that I got to hear some of the most appalling stories of other CEOs, treachery on their boards, or their COO trying to undermine them. and all the ego and competition and the money and the VCs and the funding. And it was phenomenal. So it taught me, unfortunately, that was not until 2016, (laughs) six years in, it taught me really everybody else. And I know this in life, but in business, I try and keep it together, right? We compare other people's outsides with our insides, right? Our ugly, dark, murky insides. But everybody on the outside looks wonderful. And that immersion program where we all got to sit as 16 founders and tell our ugly stories and share and come up with solutions, and we kept in touch for years afterwards, was really remarkable and helped me even see what I've been going through when male entrepreneurs based in California and in Africa heard my story of VCs and I should step down and uh, other challenges. And there were uh, female CEOs who had come in from Nigeria. Having men there in the room tell us that is bullshit and don't buy into that. It was very, very powerful. So I guess to your question, what I would tell people is don't isolate and share the ugly, dark stuff. I think that's why I do now and why, Nico, I think it's so important that 
for what it's worth, if anybody listens to this, that you give an opportunity, not just to me, but to other people to talk about the dark underbelly of what we do, because that's a lot of what ends up being part of the magic that for Simplify Power got us from a startup with nothing to an international company that was acquired at a really nice profit by Briggs & Stratton. And we're now, I'm not out. My exit strategy, I'm still not thinking about exit. I am in it for the next however long to continue the mission, make an impact, and have an integrated bottom line and change people's lives, both in the company and out. That's what it's about. Well, Catherine, I have uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed learning more about the underpinning mindset, rationale, and leadership choices that have gone into the, I'll say, very counterculture mm. existence of Simplify. There's a lot of things I could get into that people would love to hear of like, you know, the sort of picking apart the nuance of how you decided which market to go after in the luck or, or not, or what programs you went into with the Department of Energy, Department of Defense. But I think anybody who would like to learn more about that can find it all on, on your website. I'm going to link to, uh, I think, a real gem for this for me and I think for others is learning more about this unreasonable group. Uh, I've found some things that I candidly, I'll tell Craig this as well. I wish I had had a chance to read them before the interview um, because it, it brings so many more questions for me that we don't have time for. I'll note that uh, in, you know, as far back as uh, 2020 and this program, I believe started in 2017 for you, but you were recognized in the business 100 and you've, you've had num- numerous experiences um, that have broadened your horizons and the reach and exposure of, of Simplify, which, which for me are, they're unintended consequences of telling a good story. And that is that people just in, invariably give you a larger stage to tell that story on in front of more important people. And, uh, and those people take to heart the lessons and they share them at dinner parties and, and in ways that you can't possibly fathom that somehow karmically make their way back if you are deserving of such karma to, to, to elevating the, the voice of your company. And so I just commend you as someone who has been in the industry for two decades watching companies grow and bust. Hmm. It's a tremendous effort. And I, I now have a deeper understanding and appreciation for how, uh, how you achieved it. And it's for me remarkable. And I'm, I'm sure that others are going to agree that you've got uh, a true success story on your hands. And I'm, I'm honored to have had a chance to hear with such vulnerability and transparency that what everybody wants to believe is that you know, it's, it's often fraught with like made for TV drama and, and hard, <laughs> hard knocks, you know, and that you, like every other leader, have a tendency to isolate. You have a tendency to doubt yourself. You have a tendency to internalize what others may be thinking, maybe not based on your own insecurities and, and felt mm-hmm. and lived experiences. So if yeah. If folks really want to, you know, one of the things that we didn't do early on and that somebody who didn't look very closely might not understand is like, uh, is the actual name of the company. So I'll spell it. It's Simplify, P-H-I at the end, Simplify, S-I-M-P-L-I, P-H-I. How can folks who would be so inclined, how could they connect with you? What's the best way? Where do you like to be found? Well, I do use LinkedIn. I'm, I will say to people, I'm bad about getting there every week. But I usually do a big sweep every two or three weeks 
I always appreciate it when people reach out. Also calling headquarters. I've been stopped by staff of actually answering the phone, which I've always loved to do since founding when the phones ring after hours. You never know who you're going to get on the other line. And uh, I love that. But yeah, call headquarters, reach out on LinkedIn. I always welcome connecting with people and hearing their stories because I always learn important lessons. And if you have fan mail that you want to send to Catherine, you can email me at mysuncast.com. I'll forward it along. I'll I'll make a connection if she uh, is so inclined. I'll serve as your your, uh, agent on uh, your talent agent in that regard. Uh, I I just love uh, having gotten to know you over these years. And I'm so proud of the work that you guys have done. Thank you for taking time out of what is a very busy calendar to help the Suncast audience better understand how, how it came to be. Oh, thank you, Nico. And I do listen to your shows and hear the stories and it's a huge asset to anybody listening uh, is just that listen. That's what I try and do. So thank you. I'm so honored. Catherine Von Berg is the CEO of Simplify Power, now a Briggs and Stratton company. And uh, we really appreciate you being here. We'll hope to get you back again soon. Thank you, Nico. Well, Solar Warrior, that's a wrap on this conversation with Catherine Von Berg, CEO of Simplify Power, now a Briggs & Stratton company. And this conversation truly, truly was inspirational for me. It's always good to get a chance to go back and listen in on a conversation that you've done, but also good to go back to conversations with folks that you've already interviewed. In this case, both were incredibly important and compelling for me as I've really wanted to learn what compelled the selection with Briggs and Stratton over other alternatives. How long was that decision process? But Catherine more than delivered on many, many other things like the the value of living off your own revenue, uh, how she brought strength as a female CEO to this company, the reality of not going the VC route and not being in it for an exit. So many takeaways for me from this conversation. You know, one of the things that I found amazing was just listening how she thought about building a team. Uh, Don't internalize what others think of you or project about you. Hire for the give a shit factor and tell me some of your gifts that you bring to the world. So I invite you to do the same. Would you tell us some of the gifts you bring into the world, some of the ways that you think about hiring your team, some of the reasons that you're not in it for the exit. Would you do that, please, by sharing this episode in particular to your tribe on LinkedIn? That's my ask today. Share this episode with your tribe over on LinkedIn and hashtag Solar Warriors and at mention Catherine Von Berg. Let her know that you listened to this episode and that you uh, appreciate her strength and her insight, her courage as we all do. If you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion that we have had here in almost 500 episodes of Suncast over at mysuncast.com. That's where we'll link to all of our social media uh, locations, which of course we will have posted as well, a published LinkedIn post and Twitter post about this episode that you're welcome to share if that's easier for you. And uh, I really just value that we get to glean your insights and hear from you what magic you're bringing to the world and how this inspired you to show up differently, better, uh, more completely this week or challenge the way that we have approached the world in this conversation. I want to thank once again our sponsors, 
for helping make this Suncast podcast free to you each and every week. You can learn more about them over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor and click through their offers. That's also where you can learn how you could partner with us to help the Suncast tribe reach more people as well as help you get your message out to the thousands of solar warriors and climate champions that we reach each and every week, twice a week. Hope we'll see you again on the next one. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.